word. I thank you for the truth that John included in this gospel account for us to glean from. I pray that you will apply truth to our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a man who was observing that an elderly man ordered one hamburger, one order of french fries, and one drink. And then the elderly man unwrapped the plain hamburger and carefully cut it in half, placed one half in front of himself, one half in front of his wife. Then he carefully counted out the french fries, dividing them into two piles neatly, one in front of his wife, one in front of him. He took the sip of one drink and put it between them. And as he began to eat his few bites of hamburger, the people around couldn't help but noticing and whispering about what was going on. You could tell they were thinking that poor old couple, all they can afford is one meal for the two of them. <clears throat> so as the man began to eat his fries, a young man came to the table and he politely offered to buy another meal for them. And the elderly man just said, no, we're fine. We're just used to sharing everything. The surrounding people noticed the little lady hadn't eaten one bite. She just sat there watching her husband eat, occasionally taking a turn at sipping the drink. Again, the young man came over and begged them to let him buy another meal for them. And this time, the older woman said, no, thank you. We're used to sharing everything. As the old man finished and was wiping his face neatly with a napkin, the young man came again over to the little old lady who had yet to take one single bite of food and asked, what are you waiting for? And she answered, the teeth. <laughs> well, they shared everything. <clears throat> it was a long story for a punchline on that one, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Anyways, yes, yes, it is gross. Well, life here and now in the world we live in is based on time because time is a part of creation, uh, yet God himself is not in time because he is eternal. We often find ourselves confused or frustrated when we try to apply our concept of time to the Lord. I mean, we know that verse, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day to him. In our lives, we have important decisions to make that are often time sensitive. And we attempt to deal with problems that we've never faced before and never had to think about before. But God is not like us. There is no indecision with God. God doesn't make a decision because he suddenly is facing a decision he knew nothing about or a situation. He determines both the problems and their solutions far in eternity past. Therefore, he's never surprised or baffled in any way. And it's for this reason that we can trust him for ordering our days, each day that we live, and each event that happens in our days. <clears throat> in our study today, we see that Jesus, in coming to earth, is now living and functioning with time. The ministry and life of Jesus is lived out by the eternal decrees of God. The most important day of the ministry of Jesus will be the day of his death. And this was eternally determined and planned by God, and Jesus knew every event in his life and ministry were marked out for him to do by the Father. The timetable for every day of his life was determined and that is why one day he would not go to Jerusalem, and a couple days later he would go to Jerusalem. So as chapter 7 begins, we read, and after these things, referring to the things of chapter 6, at the time of the Passover, which is in the month of April. So this new chapter tells us it is now the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in the month of October. Therefore, we know there's a six-month gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. <clears throat> this would have been a six months of time where Jesus ministered in the Galilee area 
also including Tyre and Sidon, and performed many miracles as well as feeding of the 4,000. And his focus during that time would have been uh, training and working with his disciples, not on the stage of large, massive crowds. So the timetable of God the Father is seen in verses 1 through 9 because Jesus' brothers encouraged him to go up uh, in a public way to Jerusalem. We read, After these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. So having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So he had his siblings who, won, who made a request of him to leave most likely with a large caravan with everybody from Galilee because this is one of the three feasts that were required to go up to Jerusalem and participate in in the Jewish community. <clears throat> and it was time to go. We also see from these verses the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Jesus already. And because of this, he's not willing to carry out an open ministry in Jerusalem because it was not yet the time of his death. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was a very important celebration. It lasted seven days. It was a joyful time of festival and thanksgiving. So throughout the rooftops of Jerusalem, as well as the streets and everywhere around, there would have been leafy little shelters for people to be in to remind them of what their ancestors dwelled in uh, in years past in the wilderness life. As the special feast was soon, Jesus' brothers assumed he'd go up to the Galilee, from Galilee with them to the festival. And it seems like they're challenging him to go up and perform his miracles in a big stage setting of Jerusalem where there will be countless numbers of people present. They themselves were not yet believing who he was, but maybe they thought going to Jerusalem would be the test of Jesus being accepted as the Messiah. In other words, if you want to be well-known as a Messiah, then go where the crowds are. <clears throat> if you do these things, shows and show yourself to the world. They, they spoke this way to Jesus because they were not yet believing in him. You recall in Mark 3 that he and uh, the brothers and Mary were trying to take Jesus home. They thought he was out of his mind. So all that they had seen Jesus do had not persuaded them. It would take his resurrection from the dead to finally bring them to a place of faith and understanding of who their half-brother was. Clearly, their concept of the Messiah was like probably the vast majority of crowds who followed at a distance. Many of you have brothers and sisters that you have grown up with, and how hard it is to be misunderstood by the ones you shared your childhood with. Certainly, Jesus loved his siblings, so their lack of acceptance of him as Messiah certainly had to be sorrowful. His response to their request was simply that it was not the time for him to do what they were asking him to do. His brother's lack of belief in him was not going to dictate his actions. Everything Jesus did was planned by the Father in his own time. So if you struggle with family who just don't get who you are or what you believe or why, know that you're not alone. Jesus experienced the same thing. His siblings knew nothing about Jesus obeying the purposes and plans of God the Father. They had no concept 
also of the hostility and hatred that was awaiting Jesus in Jerusalem. So Jesus told his brothers, go on ahead. He was not going to prematurely bring about his death when it wasn't the precise time planned by the Father. And Jesus wasn't saying to them, I'm not going up. I'm not going up at this time, the time his brothers wanted him to go. So God's timing for Jesus to go to the feast, we see in verses 10 through 13. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly for, of, about him for fear of the Jews. So apparently Jesus arrives somewhere in the middle of the week to the feast. Everyone else from Galilee had already long gone. The roads were likely pretty empty when Jesus went and probably went through Samaria as a shortcut as well. And the religious leaders were waiting. They were right there waiting. Where is he? Uh, the masses of people were also talking a lot about Jesus, some with mixed reviews. He's a good man. He's not a good man. Jesus couldn't have been just a good man when he claimed to be God. A mere man would not be good if he were doing that. Nor could he have uh, been one who leads people astray because those who deceive would not be able to perform the supernatural miracles that Jesus did to prove that he was the Messiah. Whatever their opinion was about Jesus, the truth was they were all scared to talk about it openly because they could be excommunicated from the synagogue, which was basically the entire life in the Jewish community, if they were in any way in opposition to the religious leaders and what they were going to rule about Jesus. So saying the wrong things in public was dangerous. We learn from these verses the importance of following the Lord and trusting his timing for our lives. We have the word of God that informs us what his will is, how we're to live, how to respond, how to trust, how to grow. And we as believers have the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us the power to obey his word and his will. We walk by faith and not by faith, not by sight, and how often our faith is tested when we must depend on him for the right timing of our answers to, uh, answers to prayer, things that we think he's being mighty slow about <clears throat> or certainly not on our timetable. Family members who are not believers do not have the ability to understand God's word and why you would choose to live a life by his holy standards. And so we pray for them to have their eyes open to the truth in God's perfect timing. Well, that brings us to the claims of Jesus at the Feast of Booths. So he astonishes everybody who hears him teach in verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. And the Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. So at this point, as you know, the feast is about half over, and suddenly Jesus is there, unannounced, in the temple. The city and the temple would have been packed with so many thousands and thousands of people present for the feast. His unexpected public appearance at this point caught the Jewish leaders off guard, and making it hard for them to arrest him in public. 
So he began teaching in the temple, and he boldly proclaimed truth of who he was, his true identity, and his mission. And John includes uh, this teaching about Jesus because it's part of convincing everybody who would read this gospel account that Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be. So where did Jesus get his knowledge? As they listened to him, they're astonished by his knowledge of scripture. After all, he's from Galilee. We don't have a school up in the sticks. And Jesus hadn't been to any of their former uh, rabbinical schools. So how could he speak with authority when he hadn't been trained, you know, by them? In other words, ignore what he's saying because we haven't given them this authority to teach. And Jesus replies by making it clear his teaching is not his own, but the one who sent him. His critics never thought it possible that his teaching could have been superior in source to theirs, their seminaries. Jesus was not taught by men, but rather he taught what the one who sent him commissioned him to say. So Jesus is making it clear that in rejecting him and his message, they are rejecting God himself. And how uh, how people can be sure about his teaching? If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Here Jesus promises that the truly honest and humble seeking person who wants to know the truth will understand that his teaching is true. It is the work of the Holy Spirit who confirms truth in a person's heart and mind and makes them have a willing heart made willing by his work. And Jesus is selfless. He says in verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there's no unrighteousness in him. False messiahs, false prophets, false teachers speak because they're speaking their own mind and they're speaking for their own popularity. The same is true of false teachers today who abound in our Christian bookstores and on the Christian radio stations and Christian TV. They seek to honor themselves rather than to honor God. Not all, but many. And this is what the Pharisees did who loved the places of honors. They loved being noticed by men. They loved you know, being noticed their long uh, prayers that were empty. In contrast, Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Jesus came in humility, having nowhere to lay his head. What a contrast to many false teachers today who believe and teach that you, as a believer, ought to be healthy and you ought to be wealthy and have the best that money can buy. That's nothing about the Jesus in the Bible. Well, Jesus promises judgment in verses 19 and 20. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Well, these leaders boasted about being disciples of Moses. They loved the seat of prominence in the synagogue, Moses' seat, where they, where they read the Torah. They had the Torah, and yet they failed to keep the law and that they claimed to live by and spend their days studying. Jesus was reading the very hearts of these religious leaders at that moment, and these were hearts filled with murder and hatred toward him. Jesus also knew that many of the crowd were neutral as he was speaking to them. And in six months' time, many of these same people will be shouting, crucify him. This crowd was mixed with Pharisees, pilgrims from far away, and residents of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the citizens of Jerusalem can't imagine what Jesus has just said. So they accuse him of having a demon. What an accusation to make against Jesus. The crowd certainly had no idea at this point how badly their spiritual leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They will be manipulated by these religious leaders and indeed 
they will ultimately kill him. Jesus points to his miracles then. I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses isn't broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So Jesus is apparently going back to that healing we studied two weeks ago of the man by the pool of Bethsaida in chapter 5. And these amazing miracles Jesus performed should have been proof that he was who he was claiming to be. But as you recall, all the religious leaders could think about was the fact that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. And that was work in their faulty thinking. Now, clearly, babies are born every day of the week. So every baby born on a Friday would do to be circumcised the following Sabbath, eight days later. And they would have done that. How ridiculous to believe that this was a proper and right thing to do, and then to bitterly object to an entire man being made well on the Sabbath. These men who prided themselves as theological experts had absolutely no discernment of truth. Only their self-righteous legalism, which kept them from judging truth with righteous judgments. So the response to the claims of Jesus, well, we see in verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Yes. Look, he's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Obviously, no. However, we know where this man is from, and whenever the Christ may come, we, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So in these verses, we have the reaction of the citizens of Jerusalem. They were aware of the true intentions of the religious leaders who were headquartered in their city. They don't appear to be as friendly toward Jesus as those who were pilgrims in the city. And the answers to their question is, well, yes, this is the man the leaders want to kill. And they're surprised that the rulers were saying nothing at this point to Jesus. So then they ask the question, well, oh, maybe they're embracing him themselves. Well, they know full, full well that was not true. But they stretch the facts, and now they ask a question about the Messiah. They state they know where Jesus is from, and that then when the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know where he came from. They thought they knew all about Jesus. They assumed he was born in Nazareth because that's where he was from. But they were wrong. Their other mistakes uh, was having believed a popular theology that an apocryphal book talked about that the Messiah will come suddenly into the temple and no one will know where he's from. And all of this is in total contradiction of the Old Testament that clearly stated the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, as well as the countless other prophetic Statements made that Jesus fulfilled healing the lame, the blind, the deaf. Jesus did not point out their error. Rather, he yells out so all can hear, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come from myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. So at this point, they're seeking to seize him, but no man could lay a hand on him because it was not the right time. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? 
So Jesus is deeply grieved as he cries out to this people. You think you know me? You think you know where I came from? Jesus made it clear, you have no idea about me nor about the Father you claim to worship. Jesus states clearly that not only does he know the Father, but he is sent by him. And he's making the claim here that he is God. He wasn't just born into this world like other people. He was sent by the Father, which means he existed before he ever came to earth as a man. So the clear reaction to the leaders at this point is they want to arrest him, but it doesn't work out because it's not the right time. Some of the pilgrims listening to Jesus that day put their faith in him because they believed his words and the miracles that proved who he was. But when the Pharisees heard some people talking favorably about Jesus, <clears throat> that's when they sent officers to arrest Jesus. And they joined forces together uh, with the Sadducees and Pharisees who hate each other because now they have a mutual person to hate. And they wanted to work together to get rid of Jesus. Everything Jesus did was based on God's divine timetable. So not even powerful religious leaders who got temple police to do their bidding, not an angry crowd, nothing can change the plan of God. God is always on time, and his purposes are never thwarted. Proverbs 19.21, many plans are in the man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. We're reminded again that God is completely sovereign, in control, He's working out his perfect plan and his perfect timing. And it's not just in the life of Jesus and his ministry. It's in the life of every one of his children. In contrast to the angry people who rejected Jesus and wanted to arrest him, there are many who believed in him. They were familiar with Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would do these signs, and they were convinced. The result of those who believed in Jesus and spoke openly about it <clears throat> caused the Pharisees, as I said, to join forces and order the temple police who were Levites who were like, maybe they were like the mall cops, I don't know. They were, <clears throat> you know, keep order at the temple. So anyways, here we see a clearly divided nation over who Jesus is. And at the end of this chapter, we read that even the officers weren't willing to arrest Jesus after they hear him speak. And what did they hear him say? He said in verse 37, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this was not the first nor the last time Jesus would give a public invitation of salvation with the picture of living water, that he was living water. The setting has now jumped ahead to the last day of the feast, so it's the seventh or eighth day, and Jesus used water to illustrate truth about himself, which was especially poignant because of a particular ceremony that went on at this feast. It had become a tradition that on each day of the feast there was a water ritual, the ceremony was not something spelled out in the Old Testament. It was a tradition to remember God's miraculous provision in the wilderness wanderings of how he got them water. Each day at the feast, the high priest took water from the pool of Siloam, and he carried it in a grand procession to the temple. Three blasts from the chauffeur, the ram's horn, would then be blasted to celebrate this occasion. <clears throat> they quoted Isaiah 12, 3, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Then the temple choir would sing, and the priests would march around the altar, 
and then the water was poured on the offering as to the Lord. And that's the backdrop. With these incredible words, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. People who are aware of their spiritual need are the ones who have a spiritual thirst. The only way to have relief from this thirst is to come to Jesus. He is the only source of salvation, which is living water. To come and to drink is to trust Jesus, that who he is, by faith as a true Messiah. Just like a person in a desert who is desperate for a drink of water, and they're needy and they're longing for relief, so it is in the spiritual realm. Just as water satisfies thirst, so the Spirit of God satisfies the inner person and then enables them to bear fruit. God provided for his people while wandering in the desert, and in remembering this event, Jesus is saying he's the one to provide for everybody who's spiritually thirsty and needy. Those who do not believe will have living water, or those who do believe will have living water flow from their innermost being. In other words, we who come to Jesus desperately in need and recognizing our sinful state and trust him to be the Lord of our life will then ultimately be channels of blessing to others. As one commentator said, the believer is not self-centered. As he receives the gift of God, so he passes it on to others. Or to put the same thought in another way, when a man become, believes, he becomes a servant of God, and then God uses him to be a means by bringing the blessing to others. End of quote. So, does your spiritual life spill out into the lives of others? Have you ever, have you ever had your spiritually destitute soul aware that you have this great need for forgiveness. This is the thirst. This is the longing. If a person doesn't have that, they don't even know there is a need. He still makes the same invitation for each one of us today to come. Come to me. He's the only one who can satisfy your greatest need, and that is for forgiveness of sin, to be right with a holy God, and to live a life that has value and purpose. I mean, it's pretty sick and empty in this world to live for self. He still makes this invitation to come and appropriate this gift. I hope that that has been a reality for each one of you here. We're a large group of ladies. I have no idea if that is your experience or not. But today is the day. Do not harden your heart. And if you have trusted him, are you a channel of his grace and mercy and love over overflowing into the lives of others as you serve them? The Lord never intended believers to be pawns, you know, that are stagnant. I close with a verse from a hymn that beautifully expresses what Jesus said. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give. The living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived. Now I live in him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are the living water we all so desperately need. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has never recognized how desperately they need your righteousness, that you will open their eyes to understand that they will call upon you as the only means to be made right with a holy God. I thank you for the sacrifice that you did and in, on behalf of sinners. And Lord, I thank you that you never change. And every day of our life and every event in every day of our life is ordained by you 
Lord, help us to trust you and to believe what we know is true in Scripture. Help us to live in light of that reality, not live in fear and anxiety and um, uncertainty, but knowing that you have a perfect time for every event and what you're doing in our lives, when you're going to bring healing, when you're going to bring a different job, when you're going to provide for a need, when you're going to save a loved one, Lord. We pray that you will help us to trust you and your timing, knowing that you are the sovereign God of the universe. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.